Today, though, I'd like uh, for us to talk about talking to ourselves. There are many bad jokes about talking to yourself, like the one about the guy who was asked by his therapist how long he'd been talking to himself, to which he replied, I don't know, let me ask him. (laughs) Then there's the one about the guy who said he used to talk to myself a lot. This is the quote. I used to talk to myself a lot, but we're okay now. These jokes aren't even funny. It's not really an attempted humor. You can find hundreds of these subpar jokes online. I think there are a few reasons why we joke about talking to ourselves. One reason is that we all do it. In varying degrees, in varying ways, we all do it. Some of us have learned to keep our lips still, to keep our vocal box from not being exercised as we talk to ourselves. But whether it's silent or audible, we all talk to ourselves. Another reason I think we joke about talking to ourselves is that there is a very real, very serious disease called schizophrenia, where voices, sometimes many voices, are heard uncontrollably. Some sufferers even show split personalities. I can remember as a kid... The first time seeing a homeless man walk down the street arguing violently with himself and thinking that is a very strange thing. It was a scary thing for me to see. And you put those together, that we all talk to ourselves a little or at some level or maybe more than that, and schizophrenia is a real and scary thing and we can, I think, easily wonder whether our talking to ourselves is normal or abnormal, whether we're getting worse at it or getting better at it, whether we'll do it a whole lot more in our 70s than we did in our 20s or 30s. Well, believe it or not, the Bible has answers for some of these questions. Certainly not all of these possible questions. The Bible doesn't talk about schizophrenia per se. It's not a psychiatric diagnostic encyclopedia like the dsm 4 But it does talk about and give examples of those talking to themselves. And it may surprise you, the Bible doesn't say you should stop talking to yourself. It says you can talk to yourself. More than saying you can talk to yourself, like it won't do you any harm and it won't lead to trouble or disease, the Bible says you must talk to yourself. The Bible says that you probably don't talk to yourself enough. The Bible tells us that we should be actually more aggressive and more purposeful about this thing of talking to ourselves. We all do and like the polite version, the quiet version, the non-scary version, but there's something about the, the schizophrenia sufferer who is visibly arguing, audibly arguing with himself, that's a little closer to the biblical model than the talking to yourself that you do. The Bible tells us how to really talk to ourselves. If you think about it, the way most of us talk to ourselves, it's pretty passive. Thoughts roll in, and we listen. We ponder, we consider, and we react, and we go about our merry way. The Bible tells us how to do something a little bit more serious More aggressive than that. In Psalm 42 and 43 might be the best place in the Bible which shows us this. These two psalms aren't the only ones that teach us how to talk to ourselves. You often see in the Psalter this phrase, O my soul. We sang it this morning already. Bless the Lord, O my soul. That's given a few times in Psalm 103, that phrase. Also Psalm 104. When it says, bless the Lord, O my soul, that's a man talking to his soul. He's commanding himself. You praise him. You glorify him. Psalm 62 is another place. It says, O my soul, wait in silence for God alone, for my hope is from him. He tells himself to wait. He tells himself to be quiet. He's talking back to himself and tells himself why he should do that. His hope is in God. He's reminding himself of truth. He's telling him what to do. He's trying to get a hold of himself. We say he's preaching to himself. 
Now that phrase, preaching to yourself, goes through my head maybe at least once a day, sometimes 15 times a day. So much that, by the way, it's not that I do it so well, not that I do it so often, but it does come to mind that I should be doing it multiple times a day usually. So many times a day that I just think PTY. Preach to yourself, PTY, PTY. So I've never told anyone that PTY goes through my head, but I'm going to tell you today, and maybe you'll grab a hold of it and use it and just think PTY. If you'll encourage others who are doubting, despairing, struggling, feeling dark in the soul, you'll say, hey, PTY, brother, and we'll know what it means. And besides, it's better than the Michael Jackson song, PYT, back from like three decades ago. So, PTY. Psalm 42 and 43, they go together. Uh, Some Hebrew manuscripts have them as just one psalm. The rationale for that is that Psalm 43 doesn't have its own heading. And that's kind of rare. It's not totally exceptional, but it's kind of rare in the psalms to not have its own heading. And many of the psalms that don't have their own heading really do connect with the one before that does have its own heading. But a bigger reason to put Psalm 42 and 43 together is that they share a chorus, a refrain. Remember, psalms are songs, right? So they sometimes have choruses. So look at Psalm 42, verse 5. Here's the chorus. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. It's repeated again in verse 11 of Psalm 42, and then it's repeated again verbatim in Psalm 43, verse 5. So I think they go together. Let's read them together. Let's read both of these short psalms straight through. Psalm 42 says, As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul. I remember how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon. For Mount Midzar, deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me. A prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all day long, Where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Vindicate me, O God. Defend my cause against an ungodly people. From the deceitful and unjust man, deliver me. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Send your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God. To God my exceeding joy. And I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. I think there are four things that we can learn from the psalmist here in these two psalms. Four main lessons. The first two are long ones. And the last two are rather quick. 
Talking to yourself is certainly one of them, but it's not the first. The first is to take your problems to God. You must take your problems to God. The psalmist does this. We know that we have problems, and we know what those problems are. If you think of it in these terms, we're all inspectors. By nature, we inspect others, of course, we're familiar with that, but we also inspect ourselves, and you probably inspect yourself more than you think you do. We all have this, we all have this radar screen. You could call it uh, not right. That's what's over the, the radar screen. It's a, a radar screen of life. We look at life through this radar screen. We look at circumstances and relationships and job and feelings and accomplishments and expectations. And then every now and then there are these blips. Well, well, not every now and then, constantly, many at a time. There are these blips on the screen. This isn't right. That didn't go according to plan. This is hard. I don't like this. We're all professional appraisers, not of homes, but of life. And from one angle, this is good. This is how God made us to be. He's a judge. He has wisdom. He discerns. He's made us in his image. And he's made us to look at things and size them up. But of course, sin has entered this world. And with it has come a very screwed up radar screen. God made Adam and Eve with a God radar. And the blips were what weren't God and didn't fall under his glory and wasn't according to his good plan. But since sin has entered the world, we all are born with a self-radar. And so the, the test is, does, does it feel good? Do I like it? Is it according to my expectations? And our culture, of course, has to be an additional factor for how constant and how self-centered this radar can be. Consumerism and materialism and hedonism have all taught us to constantly keep our finger on the pulse of satisfaction, to constantly check in with ourselves about whether we like this or that, whether it's something small or big, something long ago or something right there in the second, the moment. You could be having a conversation with someone over coffee and thinking the whole time, did I like what they just said, did I like the way they just looked at me? Do I like that shirt? Do I like this experience? Do I like the smell in here? Do I like what's going on here? Do I feel all right? Am I, am I okay today? Have you ever wondered just what it would look like if you really answered someone who said, how's it going? How you doing? You probably get that question asked several times a day. Usually, if you're like me, you say, Fine, good, better than I deserve, something like that. And those are all fine and good. But what if, just imagine, if you tried to give the fullest answer possible to the question, how you doing? Well, I, Bunyan's acting up again, and let's just start there at the bottom. We'll work our way up, and then out from there, okay? I got this weird knee thing. Actually, I do have a weird knee thing. I'll tell you, I get super hot red knees. Does anyone know what that's about? If this wasn't church, I'd show you, but that'd be kind of weird. It'd be weird for me to tell you about my super red hot knees. But that's exactly my point, right? We don't answer those questions, how you doing, how's it going today, to the fullest. My point is simply that we could go on for a very long time. If you were given a dollar for everything you said, you could, you could become a millionaire thinking about what's good, what's bad, how you do and how you feel. And we don't have the time or the guts to tell someone who asks us that. And I'm not saying we should. I'm just saying we know exactly what's going on because the radar is always up and we often rehearse to ourselves those blips on the screen that either just happened or happened 10 years ago. We're interpreters of the facts. 
We try to interpret why this or that thing happened, why this or that thing went wrong. We know we have problems all too well, and we try to understand those problems. We want to understand what's wrong. We want to understand uh, why it's wrong, and we want to see if we can change it. And, And none of that's wrong. But we can't do that apart from God. We have to take our problems to God. But I don't know, if you're like me, you don't do that nearly enough. For me, for some dumb reason, I choose to bear my burdens myself. I take my burdens to me, and I drop them off right there, and I bear them. I forget First Peter 5, verse 7 Cast all your worries, your cares, your anxieties on the Lord, for he cares for you. It's stupid to bear my own burdens like I'm God, like I have super strength, like I'm all-knowing and wise, like I can do anything about most of the burdens I bear, especially when he's infinitely strong and he can do something about those burdens. We need to take our problems to God. And the psalmist takes his problems to God. He says in verse 4 that he pours out his soul. That's what we're calling this series. Pour out your soul to him. It's what we see so often in the Psalms, and here we see it explicitly in Psalm 42. And pour out your soul might just sound like be honest. Might just be like a poetic way of saying, tell him how you're feeling. But it's literally, I pour out myself. I, I take my guts out and lay them on the table. Tells God what's wrong in his life, like so many of the Psalms do. We call them Psalms of Lament, right? We've seen some of those, and this is one of those, a song of lament. And we've said before that taking our problems to God helps immediately. It starts us on the right path because it begins to gain perspective. It forces us to look outside of ourselves. It's difficult to continue in unbelief and aggravation and rebellion and hard-heartedness and doubt when we're talking to God about it. More can be done after we talk to God about it. It's not the only tool in the toolbox, but nothing can truly or spiritually be done until we recognize God in the equation and we begin to talk to him about our worries. Now, let's get specific about what the psalmist's problems were. You, you have your problems, right? You know what those are. Some of them are petty, and those need a healthy rebuke this morning. And some of them are big, and they need balm, comfort this morning. And so you'll be thinking as we go through this, okay, how does that fit with this? This thing, that thing, this thing, that thing. You know those those problems in your life. But let's try to figure out what's going on here in Psalm 42 with the guy who wrote this in the first place. What are his problems? Well, the first problem, really the main problem, is right there in the first verse. He says, As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. Now that is describing a problem. If you've been a Christian for a while, and if you're used to that language, if you've seen that verse plastered on a pleasant poster or Christian greeting card, you might think it's not describing a problem. You might think it's just a sweet saying. It's a sweet feeling. It sounds serene, like a a doe that, yes, is thirsty, but it's smiling somehow. sounds extremely personal, intimate in a good way. It sounds... Almost romantic feeling, but it shouldn't. A deer who's panting for the water brook like this is a deer that's about to die. It's a desperate deer. It can't get the water. It can't find the water. Maybe because its usual watering place is dried up. Maybe the deer has come a long ways Maybe down a long, difficult slope to get lower to a creek. And it gets there and it's dry. What now? Well, the deer isn't a little thirsty. 
He was thirsty when he was heading towards that water. He timed it perfectly to get there. And now he's not just panting. He's desperate. His panting is real and desperate. And it's a matter of life and death. In this word picture, obviously, the psalmist is the deer and God is the water, which means the psalmist can't get to God. He can't find God. It's good that he wants God. He seeks God. He pants after God. That's good. But there's a problem here. He can't find him. Where is he? And he's frantic, restless, Growing desperate, like the deer, if he doesn't get God soon, he's going to die. And you can see the way it's described, not just in the deer word picture, but you see in verse 3, he's endlessly taunted by his enemies. They're oppressing him, verse 9 says. Verse 7 says, the oppression of the enemy and their constant day and night taunting feels like, I'm sorry, verse 10 says, it feels like it's a deadly wound. See that? In verse 3, he says that his tears have been his food day and night. What's that mean? It means tears have replaced food. And tears are in the day and in the night. It means he's not eating. He's not sleeping. And by the way, we should just insert a little comment here about the relationship between the physical and the spiritual because they often feed one into the other. What starts as merely emotional and spiritual can obviously here lead to a physical dynamic. You don't eat. You don't sleep. And what happens when you don't eat and you don't sleep? Well, I can tell you my own story. I get grumpy. I'm much more prone to cry if I didn't sleep. Much more prone prone to cry if I haven't eaten in a long time. It feels like he's drowning, he says in verse 7. Or, what we're most familiar with, he is, verse 5, cast down or downcast, as some translations have. He's in inner turmoil. Now, why does he feel like God has been distant? Right? So he feels God is distant. He feels like he's like a water that he can't find. And he needs it and he's desperate for him. Why does he feel like God isn't there? Well, part of the answer to that question requires that we put on our Old Testament glasses. You've got to think like an Old Testament Jew here just for a little bit. Notice the heading of Psalm 42. It's written by the sons of Korah. Korah was one of the Levitical musicians appointed by King David in the Old Testament. These were musicians in charge of temple worship, right? So they're leading the people in praise for certain festivals and certain sacrifice days. Of course, the sons of Korah followed in their father's footsteps with that same job, It's a whole family, you could say, of church musicians. Not just a family, it's a lineage of church musicians. And one of them writes Psalm 42 and probably Psalm 43. But you couple that fact with that there's this. There's something geographical going on in Psalm 42. Notice verse 6. He's away from home, apparently. He says, his soul is cast down within me, therefore I remember you. That's a good thing. But where does he remember him from? I remember you from the land of Jordan, north of Jerusalem, of Hermon. I remember you from Mount Mizar. He's not in Jerusalem. His job is Jerusalem. His job is temple worship. And he's away from it. He's away from home, but he's away from the temple. Maybe more importantly, this is not just a psalm about homesickness. I think that's what he means in verse 2. When he says, I'm thirsting for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? I think implied is, when shall I come again before God and be before him? Look at verse 4. He says, these things I remember as I pour out my soul. What do you remember? 
I remember how I would go with the throng, the giant group, the multitude. I would lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. You see, this is very geographical. We don't know why he's been displaced. Possibly this was written during the Babylonian captivity. Maybe there's an exile going on, and he longs for Jerusalem. But we know he longs for Jerusalem. And we know that connects to his longing for God. Because he can't get to where, in the Old Covenant, God was revealing himself and setting up shop, setting up house. Because he can't get there, he doesn't feel like God is near. He can't get to God. That's what he means at the beginning of verses 1 and 2 of Psalm 42. Now, now I think we can either... Overemphasize or underemphasize this Old Testament geographic dynamic. You see, in the Old Covenant, Israel's worship was tied to a place. In many ways, it was geographical, in a city and in a building. It had externals to it, externals which changed in the coming of Christ. Jesus talked about this in John 4. He talked to the woman at the well, and she asks him, People debate where God should be worshipped, that mountain or that mountain. And Jesus says, the day's coming, and now is, when you worship him neither on that mountain or that mountain, but you worship him in spirit and truth. It's not about a place. It's not, a lo- not about a mountain or a, a building. You worship him in your heart. You worship wherever you are, in a sense. But even keeping our Old Testament glasses on, we know where it's going with John 4 and what Jesus says, that it's not about a city, it's not about a place for us anymore. Even keeping the Old Testament glasses on, I think the psalmist in Psalm 42 is kind of right, kind of wrong, to feel like God isn't there. On the one hand, he's right because, again, worship was tied to a place, it's tied to a building. More of God's presence was revealed there in the Jerusalem temple than in another city far away. Look at Psalm 137 to see this. Psalm 137. This is is important to see how things have changed from the old covenant into the new covenant. From before Jesus to now with Jesus, after Jesus' birth. Psalm 137, this is written at the time of the Babylonian captivity, and we sat down by the rivers there, and we wept when we remembered Zion. We hung up our lyres or our harps. Our captors, verse 3, said to us, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. Give us one of those old Jerusalem tunes, those happy Jerusalem tunes. They say, well, how can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? How can we sing here? They even wonder whether they can sing there. If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I don't remember you. Let me give up speaking. Let me give up eating if I don't set Jerusalem above my highest joy. It's not that they loved a city for the sake of the city. They loved the city because it was the city of God. They loved God. And here you see the importance The prioritization of that city in which God had revealed himself among his people in a temple. So he's kind of right, back to Psalm 42, to say, where are you? I'm not there. How do I get to you? When are you going to bring me home? But he's wrong in the sense that he may be downplaying that God is everywhere, that God is a spirit. Even Psalm 139 at length talks about God's, what we call, omnipresence. His presence is everywhere. And you see right in Psalm 42, the irony. He thinks God isn't there, that God may not hear, and yet he prays. If God can be prayed to away from Jerusalem, then he's near to you away from Jerusalem. It's kind of right, it's kind of wrong. And similarly, we should feel both convicted and encouraged by his example of longing for corporate worship like he does. He longs for corporate worship. Being away from corporate worship is tearing him up. 
He feels crushed. He's panting for God, yes, but for God in corporate worship. We should be convicted because not many of us long for corporate worship like that. Not many of us think what we're doing right here is nearly as important as the way he's describing it here. Imagine being asked, if you were stranded on a deserted island, what would you miss the most? Now, you kind of know to insert church, because we've just been talking about that, right? Corporate worship. But just imagine, you don't, I didn't set you up. This is out of the blue. Someone just says, doing a survey, you're on a, a stranded in a deserted island. What do you miss? My iPad? Well, what do I do with my thumbs? My, did my iPhone survive the crash? I sure hope so. Oh, wait, we don't have any coverage? There's no cell coverage there. Oh. What would be on your list? What would be your top five? Would church make the list at all? Would church make the top five? Well, that's something close to what Psalm 42 is dealing with. Imagine being exiled away from corporate worship. What if someone said, two years of no church. Do you hear that and go, yes? Or, oh, I'm dying. We should be convicted by that. But we should be encouraged that his extreme longing for corporate worship tells us something about a prescription for when we're cast down in spirit. Sometimes when you're cast down in spirit, the least, the last thing you want to do is go to church. I think Psalm 42 is saying, friend, that's just what you need. You need his presence. Remember Psalm 16, 11, that it's in his presence that there's fullness of joy and his right hand are pleasures forevermore. And sure, you can get a bit of that on the top of a mountain, but you can get more of it as you see people who are redeemed by the blood of the lamb singing loudly and praising him greatly. I wonder how much of our doubts and seasons of darkness are owing to us not availing ourselves to more of God's presence, more of God's glory, and more of God's instruction in corporate worship. Be convicted, but be encouraged. When you're downcast, you need him. Go to where he is. Go to where he reveals himself most. You know, from one angle, Psalm 42 is talking about something that doesn't relate to us because of that whole Old Testament geographical thing, and and that's changed now with the coming of Christ. On the other hand, we all know that Psalm 42 feels pretty familiar. looks like a page ripped out of the diary of any New Testament saint. We've all felt like the Lord wasn't right there. We've all panted for him. We've all wanted more of him. We've all prayed, I think, as Christians to, f- to feel more of him, to know more of him. You don't have to be in a foreign land to feel like God is distant and not hearing and not helping. And by the way, if you're a new Christian, you've been a Christian less than a year, you need to hear this loud and clear. There are seasons of darkness and dryness, of doubt even, in the Christian life. And you'll be surprised when the first one hits because it wasn't like that for the several months before when you first became a Christian. You'll be surprised by it, but don't let it shake your foundations. It's in the Bible. The best of saints have struggled with it. This is part of the plan. We're not home yet. We have to take our problems to God. That's where it starts. The second thing we learn from Psalm 42 and 43 is that we need to preach truth to ourselves. You need to preach truth to yourself if you're a Christian. Now, I need to insert a, by the way, uh, an FYI here to tell you that even though so much of Psalm 42 is about depression, and even though I'm talking a little bit about depression here and there this morning, I think we're emphasizing this morning how to preach to yourself. Those are the two big things of Psalm 42. Psalm 42 is 
epic, it's big, it's important and essential for those two things. Dealing with depression, the problem, and how to preach to yourself. But preaching to yourself isn't just for depression. That's a tool in the tool belt, like a hammer, that can be used a lot of different ways for a lot of different problems. So today we're going to focus on PTY, preaching to yourself. Two weeks from now, though, I want to focus on just depression. Next week is Claris. The week after that, we'll come back, and I think we'll focus on Psalm 42 and 43 on this issue of depression. I think we'll do that. If I'm too depressed that week, we won't do that. (laughs) But let's talk about preaching to yourself. There is a self in there that is constantly talking. That's the radar I talked about. Because of sin, our natural self can't be trusted. You have to fight it. You have to fight against it. You have to talk to it. Talk back to it. It's not just us who's talking to us. The world is also talking to us. The world says in a variety of ways, some direct and some subtle, where is your God? Just like the psalmist was facing in his day. His enemies weren't threatening his life. They were just mocking him ceaselessly. And apparently the psalmist is beginning to entertain the idea. Because he says in verse 9, To God, why have you forgotten me? The enemies say, where is he? Where is he? I don't see him. What's he doing? Is he really helping? Are you sure he's there when you're talking to him? And instead of just preaching to himself, he entertains that apparently. Why have you forsaken me? It's mixed, isn't it? It's a mix of, have you forsaken me? If so, why? Don't be downcast. That's the nature of preaching to yourself. Really, preaching to yourself is answering yourself. There are two competing voices. And you see both in the psalm here. One voice is humbly protesting. This isn't right. I don't like this. And yet the other one doesn't ignore. The other self in there doesn't ignore the unfortunate circumstances, but it pushes against the hopelessness. It says, despite these difficult circumstances, you must put your hope in him. Trust him. This isn't the end of the story. Look at how he preaches to himself. Verse 5, remember the refrain. Verse 5, verse 11, and into Psalm 43 in verse 5. He really interrogates himself here, right? Why are you downcast? What right have you? He reasons with himself. Not just once, but he keeps going. He remembers, in verse 4, the goodness of God's presence in past moments of praise. In one way, that's stirring up more restlessness because he wants it to return. In another way, it's a good thing because he's keeping the compass pointing north towards praise. In verse 8, he recalls God's love. In verse 8, he says that he sings at night. He's still singing. That's one way he preaches to himself. A great way to preach to yourself is to sing God's truth. We did that this morning, and we'll do it again. Notice, notice some of the songs we sing are, in psalm-like fashion, talking to you. It's you talking to you. You're preaching to yourself. Notice this in verse 9, that even while he questions whether God has forgotten about him, he calls God his rock. Look at it. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? What? Why have you forgotten me? You mean the God you just called your rock? You see the irony there? Yeah, that's, that's faith. It's faith in a fallen world. It's faith before the new Jerusalem. And he prays in verse 3 of Psalm 43 for God's light and his truth to come. He requests that God would bring him home, which certainly is a good thing to pray. Notice, though, that it's multifaceted, isn't it? Real preaching to yourself is reminding yourself. It is exhorting yourself. It is pleading with yourself. Repeatedly so. It is rebuking when necessary yourself. It is arguing with you. It's rehearsing God and who he is and what he's done. And with any one of those categories, we need 
to pile up the reasons behind each one. We need to pile up the arguments, pile up the promises, pile up God's attributes. Not just one direction, not just one layer. Preach to yourself like you know a good preacher to do. Preach to yourself. Imitate a preacher. Pretend to be your favorite TV lawyer and put yourself on the stand. Now, on the one hand, that means studying, getting in the Word, memorizing some verses, knowing where things are, reading the Bible, occasionally studying theology, reading good books on the Christian life. You need to do that because you need to feed the meter, right? You need to put deposits in the bank of truth so that you can make some quick withdrawals when you face a Psalm 42 moment. We need truth, not Oprah-isms, not self-esteem optimism, not Tony Robbins, not chicken soup for the soul. You need truth from God's word And yet the other side of the coin here is that you shouldn't wait until you've memorized X number of verses to start preaching to yourself. You shouldn't wait until you've had 30 out of 30 days in the last month of doing devotions to start preaching to yourself. If you're a Christian, you already know enough about God to say something to yourself. You don't need profundity or eloquence to get a hold of yourself. You need to simply ask yourself, what... what, What does the situation say about God? What does he say about this kind of thing? What would Jesus say if he was here? Who is God? What does he promise? What can I bank on? What do I know? Because I don't know about all this. I don't know the whys of the circumstances. I don't understand all the blips on the radar screen. What do I know? Know what you know. Tell it to yourself. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote a book on this subject called Spiritual Depression. And in so much of the book, he goes to Psalm 42 as an example. Let me give you a quote here, summarizing basically what I said much better than I said it. The first thing we have to learn, Lloyd-Jones says, is that we must learn to take ourselves in hand. This man of Psalm 42 was not content to just lie down and commiserate with himself. He does something about it. He takes himself in hand. He turns to himself and says, Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you restless within me? He's talking to himself. He's addressing himself. I say that we must talk to ourselves instead of allowing ourselves to talk to us. Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you're listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Take those thoughts that come to you the moment you wake up in the morning. You've not originated them, but they come to you. They start talking to you. They bring back the problems of yesterday. Somebody's talking. Who's talking? Yourself is talking to you. But this man's treatment was this. Instead of allowing himself to talk to him, he starts talking to himself. He stands up and he says, Self, listen for a minute. I will speak to you. So preach to yourself. Question yourself. You must say to your soul, Why are you downcast? You must turn on yourself. Upbraid yourself. Condemn yourself. Exhort yourself and say to yourself, Hope in God. Instead of muttering in this depressed, unhappy way. And then you must go on to remind yourself of God, who God is and what God is and what God has done and what God has pledged himself to do. The essence of this matter of spiritual depression and how to fight it is to understand that this self of ours, this other man within us has got to be handled. Do not listen to him. Turn on him. Speak to him. Encourage him, remind him of what you know, instead of listening placidly to him. I recommend that book to you. I also recommend another book, a much easier to read book, a new book and a small book. It's called Note to Self, The Discipline of Preaching to Yourself. 
48 chapters, less than two pages each. Each one begins with Dear Self. And each one is a topic. Like, Dear Self, you know you ought to love others more. Dear Self, you know you should sing more. And then he develops it from there. A great example of how to preach to yourself 48 different ways. And really, if we think about it, there are an infinite number of ways and topics to, to preach to ourselves. That's the second thing. Now, quickly, third and fourth. The third being that we need to praise God where we are. You must praise God right where you are, in the midst of it. It's interesting that in Psalm 42 and 43, praise is mingled throughout, even in the weirdest of places. We already saw one of those examples. Remember verse 9? Oh God, my rock, why have you forsaken me? In the midst of doubt, he's calling God his rock. Maybe it's habit, but even if it's habit, that's a good thing. It's there. Maybe he'll hear himself say it and think, boy, that didn't make sense. I just said, oh God, my rock, why have you forsaken me? It's either one or the other, right? He's praising him in the midst of it. You see it in Psalm 43, look at verse 2. He says, you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Similar way of saying just what he said in verse 9 of Psalm 42. You also see that he's longing for and he's hoping in future praise, better praise than whatever he's able to muster up from from Haran, from Jordan, away from Jerusalem. He's longing for it. He's saying, I will again praise him. He's even saying something that might look hopeful about where he is right then. He says in verse 3, send out your light. Psalm 43, verse 3, send out your light and your truth and let them lead me. So he's not just saying, get me home, ASAP, end of story. I'll just keep repeating that one and fasting longer until you give it to me. No, he's saying, Lord, give me light. Give me truth. Let that lead me. And perhaps even let it lead me to your holy hill, to your dwelling. The point is, you praise him where you are. Not geographically, though that was true for this guy. He had to praise God in a less than ideal place. For you? Well, God is a spirit. And those who worship him, worship him in spirit and truth. And we don't have to go to a mountain. You You don't have to go to a specific church or in a specific city. You can worship him wherever. Worship him. Worship him where you are, not geographically, but spiritually where you are. You don't wait until you're fixed to praise him. You don't wait until it's cloud nine again to praise him, praise him, right where you are. And that's no small part of PTY, preaching to yourself. And lastly, we see this in the Psalm, Psalm 42 and 43. We see that we need to lean on his promises and be patient. Lean on his promises. Rehearse his promises. He does this in a variety of different ways. You can look through the psalm yourself and see the variety of different ways that he's banking on something God has said. He's trusting in something he knows about God. He's looking outside of himself to a God who works and a God who promises and a God who gives salvation. A God who is exceeding joy. A refuge. And of course, the way in which he's our greatest joy, the way in which we know him as the fullest refuge, the way in which we have seen him as our salvation is in the gospel of Jesus where he died in our place to bring us to God. He took our condemnation that we might be forgiven. He was the one who really said, I thirst. The one who said, I thirst, was truly forsaken for us. Truly forsaken. He was forsaken so that we might not be forsaken. Need to 
believe that. If you haven't, you need to embrace that as your hope. If you haven't, and if you have, you need to keep preaching it to yourself. Yeah, preach all kinds of truth to yourself, especially this biggest one, the one that has to do with your eternal state and God's, his, well, the centerpiece of his plan, we could say. But we also need to be patient. The repetition in Psalm 42 and 43 says something, doesn't it? You have to keep repeating it. You have to keep going. It needs patience here. There isn't a magic formula which we speak certain words and poof, it's all fine. Sometimes the heaviness doesn't lift. Sometimes it doesn't lift quickly or easily. Some of God's saints have struggled with depression for decades. Usually in famous biographies of great men of God, you find the connected theme of depression. Some of them struggled with that until their deathbed. It's all right, we trust him. This isn't it, we trust him. We keep doing what he says. It's like disciplining kids and teaching kids. Sometimes you're teaching them stuff and it doesn't seem like it's doing anything. Sometimes you're disciplining them and you keep disciplining them. You've given you know, 15 spankings in one day to the glory of God. <laughs> but it doesn't seem like it's doing any good. And a wise, more experienced, more experienced parent will say to you, just keep doing it. Keep trusting what he says. Admonition and instruction. That's what it says. Keep doing it. We've got to do that. Notice how the story ends in Psalm 42 and 43. You know, it's kind of a story, right? It's a, it's a story of someone's experience in a sense. And how does it end? Look at the last verse of 43 and we see it doesn't end. It isn't really resolved, does it? We didn't see a verse 6 that says, and he finally heard me and brought me home and all lived happily ever after. I think that tells us something that it doesn't tell us how it ends. We have to ask ourselves as we're going through Psalm 42 seasons, where's this going? How's this going to end? You see, because listen, this is eternally important. There are a few ways in which a Psalm 42 season can end. One is he brings resolution and it's wonderful. Glory to God. Sometimes that happens. Another way is that we keep waiting and waiting. We keep preaching and preaching. We trust. It feels dry. And then there are these lighter moments of tasting and seeing that he's good. And we yet walk by faith and not by sight. But some, far, some Psalm 42 seasons end much worse than that. Where the inner spiritual drought turns into death where the doubts are entertained for so long, they become reality. Where it doesn't just feel like feelings, it's decision. It's intellectual, it's volitional. That can happen. Spiritual dryness can evidence itself as spiritual death. So Christians must persevere. They must fight the fight of faith not least with their emotions. Not least in what and how they feel. So enter those Psalm 42 seasons with prayer and earnestness and hold each other up and fight for your life and preach to yourself until Jesus comes back and we see him face to face and we'll no longer feel like a person torn in two like two voices competing, but one that sings his note only.